Welcome to Healthy Aging with South Coast Health, the podcast that shows you how to live a longer and healthier life, showcasing doctors, clinicians, and patient stories. The goal of South Coast Health is to help and inspire you to navigate your health journey with knowledge, comfort, and ease. Hi, everyone. I'm Patricia Raskin, and I'm the host of Healthy Aging with South Coast Health. And today we are talking about acute strokes. My guest is Dr. Daniel Sacchetti, D.O. He earned his medical degree from the University of New England College of Osteopathic Medicine in Biddeford, Maine. Prior to earning his medical degree, Dr. Sacchetti earned his Bachelor of Arts degree from Boston College and a Master of Arts degree from Boston University. He completed his adult neurology residency at Rhode Island Hospital, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island followed by a vascular neurology fellowship at the New York Presbyterian Hospital, Will Cornell Medical College in New York, New York. Dr. Sacchetti's personal philosophy of care is centered around approaching each patient as if they were family. He believes it is essential to instill confidence and comfort, providing timely expertise to quickly diagnose and treat neurological conditions to maximize his patient's recovery. In addition, he enjoys spending time mentoring medical students and helping them choose their career paths. Welcome, Dr. Sacchetti. Thanks so much for having me today, Patricia. Yeah, great. So tell us, what is the clinical definition of a stroke? So a stroke is either from lack of blood flow to the brain, spinal cord, or retina, uh, or from bleeding into the brain or subarachnoid space from a ruptured blood vessel. And this causes damage to the brain tissue and leads to neurologic manifestations of the stroke. Okay. Give us an example of that. What does that look like? So symptoms and signs of a stroke can be a number of different things. Most commonly, um, someone will all of a sudden have difficulty moving an arm or a leg or their face might be drooping. Their speech may be slurred or the content of their speech may be altered. So they might not be able to actually get words out or they might seem to be confused and not respond appropriately. Other symptoms would include um, problems with vision. So loss of vision or you can't see out of um, half of your visual field, difficulty walking or balance issues. Um, uh, things like numbness or tingling, particularly on one side of the body. Um, and the hallmark of these things are that it comes on rather abruptly over seconds or even a minute or two. And that's a, that's a huge differentiation from other types of diseases within neurology. That was going to be my next question is how do you know that it's a stroke? I mean, sometimes we get numb. Sometimes we do forget. Sometimes we lose our balance. So how do we know? And you said it's because of the suddenness. Yeah, the suddenness and the pattern of symptoms. So depending on where the issue is in the brain, there's, you know, we know a lot about the, the functions of the brain and how that translates into movement and cognition. And so based on certain patterns of symptoms, we can, the terminology would be localize the problem in the nervous system. And a, a proper neurologic exam can pinpoint where the issue is in the nervous system. So that can help differentiate a pinched nerve in the neck or the arm from a stroke. Is there any similarity between a heart attack and a stroke? So yes, the short answer is yes, but there are different diseases. A lot of risk factors overlap between the two diseases. A heart attack is caused when there's 
impaired blood flow to the heart and the heart tissue. A stroke is caused from impaired blood flow to the brain. And so oftentimes a heart attack manifests as someone with really bad chest pain or shortness of breath that comes on rather acutely. In the case of stroke, it can be a myriad of symptoms, sometimes can be very subtle. And so it, it's very similar disease, um, but very different in a lot of respects. You know, we've heard about the silent heart attack. Is there something called a silent stroke? So this is a very interesting area of research within stroke, and that's really with silent strokes. So we do a lot of MRIs on people when we're evaluating them for neurologic disease, and we can oftentimes see old strokes, sometimes even rather large strokes that went clinically silent. Either the patient wasn't aware or, you know, whoever they were with didn't notice. And then we see it, you know, months or years later. Um, and this is important because actually, if you don't control risk factors or do appropriate stroke workups, people are at high risk for recurrent strokes. And as you have more and more strokes, that causes more and more disability. And so what we see when we do images of silent strokes is that can be oftentimes correlated with vascular causes of dementia. It's actually a very interesting area of research right now. On the whole, Dr. Sacchetti, how common is stroke? So stroke affects about 800,000 patients in the United States every year. It's the fifth leading cause of death in the U.S. and the, actually the second leading cause of death worldwide. So it's a very common disease. So who's at risk for a stroke? So when we think about risk factors for stroke, the, the way that I like to explain it is that there's non-modifiable risk factors, things that we cannot control, and then there's modifiable risk factors, things that we actually can control. And there's a lot of them. So things that are non-modifiable, and unless we have some sort of miracle breakthrough, is age. <laughs> and so, you know, we all are getting older every minute, every day, every year. And that is probably the number one non-modifiable risk factor for stroke. Let me ask you, why is that? What happens as you get older to the brain that would that would cause that risk? Yeah, so it's it's more so the the arteries that bring blood to the brain and then other comorbid conditions that go along with the aging process. And then also the brain is just not nearly as resilient as you get older. So things that may have been silent when you're in your 50s or 60s can actually have much more egregious manifestations when you're older. And so non-modified risk factors would include, you know, family history of stroke particularly at a young age race. So African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans have a, a much higher risk of death from stroke. Gender, women have more strokes than men, and stroke kills more women than men. And if you've had a prior stroke, heart attack, or a TIA, those put you at risk for a subsequent... Quick question about that. How do you know if you've had a TIA? And you can give us the medical term for that. Um, sometimes people just blank out for a minute, and it's not a TIA. How do you know? That's a great question. So a TIA stands for a transient ischemic attack, and that's defined as transient neurologic symptoms attributed to a cerebral vascular cause that clears up. And when you do imaging on those patients with an MRI, you don't, you don't see a stroke. They can sometimes be quite challenging to diagnose because people have you know, spells all the time and there's a whole laundry list of conditions that can look like a TIA. So some like seizures can sometimes look like TIAs, for instance. And it really takes a thorough neurologic investigation and a neurologist 
to really evaluate the patient, get the history, do an exam, do appropriate imaging and, and workup, and then make a determination of whether or not this was likely a TIA or not. Mm-hmm. And then and if it's not, if, mm-hmm. you know, what else it could potentially be. The workup and treatment for a TIA is essentially the same thing as an ischemic stroke. And so really, you know, folks with TIA should be evaluated in a timely fashion, similar to someone with a stroke. Mm -hmm. Who else is at risk for a stroke? Right. So, So in terms of the modifiable risk factors, probably the number one modifiable risk factor is hypertension. Um, that's probably the leading cause of stroke um, and is highly prevalent in our society. And that means um, stress. You're talking about stress. No, hypertension in terms of elevated blood pressure. So really, the most recent guidelines um, state that your blood pressure should be less than 130 over 80 all the time. And if it's above that, Oftentimes, people won't have any symptoms of it, but over months and years, that will cause damage to the arteries and to the brain and other you know, organs like the heart and the kidneys and really put you at risk for a lot of different medical issues down the road. So that is probably the number one thing that people can do to really reduce the risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. Another major thing would be smoking, and really nobody should be smoking. It, there's really no health benefits at all, and it really puts you at risk for heart attacks and strokes. What about stress management? What about modifying your stress, meditating, mindfulness? Does that help? Yeah, so so anxiety and depression definitely have been identified as risk factors for stroke, albeit smaller than some of these other conditions. But that is absolutely important to reduce your risk of stroke. Other conditions that would really be important to optimize would be um, if you have high cholesterol, um, if you're diabetic. If you have carotid artery disease or peripheral artery disease, um, your diet and nutrition, so diets high in saturated and trans fat or cholesterol, high calorie and sodium intake really increase your risk. There have been several diets that have been looked at um, to optimize uh, you know, stroke risk and, and heart attack risk, and th- those include the Mediterranean diet, DASH diet, and the American Diabetes Association diet, which all advocate eating more fruit vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, and some dairy with a lot less added sugar uh, and red and processed meat. Really, it's it, that is actually probably that in addition to physical inactivity or you know lack of exercise, those two things, changing your diet and exercising more, probably can have as big of an impact as any of the medications that we can provide for people. That is probably, that, that's really, in my opinion, really where the meat is in terms of reducing risk is optimizing a healthy lifestyle. So there's a lot we can do on our yes. own. There's really a lot. Yes. You said eating well, exercise. What about sleep? Yeah, that's an interesting topic. So, uh, you know, there's an association with obstructive sleep apnea and stroke, and it's not really clear if it's, you know, a cause or effect of stroke, but certainly people that have sleep apnea also have sometimes comorbid obesity, physical inactivity. That's not always the case. Impaired sleep can cause havoc across the board for your overall health, not only cardiovascular wise, but in terms of uh, mental wellness as well. Hmm. Let's talk about the different types of stroke. Great. So there's three big categories of stroke. There's ischemic stroke, 
intracerebral hemorrhage and subarachnoid hemorrhage. By far and away, ischemic stroke is the most common. It affects about that's about 87% of strokes. Um, the rest, the rest of the 13% um, are hemorrhages. About 10% are intracerebral hemorrhage, and about 3% are subarachnoid hemorrhage. About 800,000 patients in the U.S. have a stroke every year. But again, the bulk of these are ischemic strokes. And an ischemic stroke is when there's lack of blood flow to the brain, usually from a clot. It can also be from lack of blood flow through your whole circulatory system. But it's usually from either a clot forming in the brain or a piece of plaque that formed somewhere else and then traveled up to the brain and blocked an artery in the brain. And then that causes lack of blood flow to the brain tissue. And then because of the lack of oxygen to that brain tissue, that tissue dies off and causes permanent damage. So in terms of ischemic stroke, um, because of the, the problem is lack of blood flow, usually from a clot, the hallmark of treatment is trying to break that clot up with a clot-busting medication. And that's called TPA or Alteplase. There's also another medication that's been getting a lot of attention that's similar to to Alteplase, and it's called Tenecteplase. Those medications fall under the category of what what I'd call thrombolytic agents. And those medications are given to a patient um, when they arrive very soon after a a stroke has started in an attempt to break the clot up that's causing a stroke. Um, With TPA or Alteplase, we can give that medication up to four and a half hours from the last time a patient was seen neurologically well, meaning that they, were, they weren't having stroke symptoms. There is some data showing that we can potentially give that medication and select people beyond four and a half hours, but really standard of care is treatment within four and a half hours with Alteplase. If someone's having a major stroke where a major artery either in the neck or in the brain is causing a stroke, we can perform endovascular therapy where an interventionalist will go up and actually physically remove the large clot. That can be done really up to 24 hours, rarely beyond that in some cases, but there's growing literature, including more patients for this procedure. And it really has been a groundbreaking, life-saving therapy in acute stroke. Since uh, How much of a risk is there to do that? So there's always a risk with any procedure, and there's different complications that can arise from performing that procedure, but these are patients that are having extremely large life-altering or potentially life-ending stroke. So in the vast majority of the cases, any potential risk of the procedure is greatly outweighed by the benefit of that procedure. Um, But these are always very real-time considerations in every patient and takes a lot of input from several different physicians. What about the treatments available for stroke victims? So the treatments primarily are the thrombolytic therapy, alteplase or tenecteplase, and then endovascular therapy, which involves mechanical thrombectomy or taking the, taking the clot out. There's a growing area of interest in so-called neuroprotective agents, which can preserve the brain function around the area of the lack of blood flow to prolong the window where we have time to get these therapies on board. Because one of the major problems in stroke is that people don't come to the hospital soon enough to deliver treatment. Um, And that's a a huge problem that people are just, they show up too late and they're not eligible um, for any treatment. Hmm. Can someone recover completely from a stroke? 
So about 50% of patients will have disability that impacts their independence after a stroke. And really the, the major predictors for recovery is, is how much damage was caused from the stroke, the extent of it in terms of the brain tissue, um, the age of the patient, the, actually the location of the stroke. Um, so um, some areas of your brain um, carry a lot more real estate than other areas of your brain. So you can actually, this kind of goes back to your question about silent strokes. You know, you can sometimes have strokes in areas of the brain you would not have any really idea. But in some other parts of your brain, you might have a very small stroke that could cause serious disability. And then a lot of other comorbidities that play into this, you know, baseline mm. functional status before. If you, you know, say you have a cardiorespiratory issue that prevents you from physical, you know, rehab, um, you know, optimization, that can impair your recovery. Um, so there's a lot of things that going in, go into predicting how someone can, is going to recover, but, um, but really time, time will tell. And the vast majority of recovery occurs within the first three to six months. Is there a multidisciplinary approach in regarding to stroke treatment? Absolutely. I mean, it truly takes a village to care for stroke patients. And I would say that the, the stroke continuum of care really starts in the community with bystanders and understanding signs and symptoms of stroke, as well as EMS response teams. EMS is crucial in terms of partnering with hospital systems to deliver optimal stroke care. And so after patients are suspected of having a stroke in the field, Patients arrive in the emergency department, so there's doctors, nurses, assistants, transport staff, radiology staff that quickly work to take care of the patient, to stabilize them and assess them for any therapies. Then patients become admitted to the hospital floors and sometimes the ICUs where they're cared for. Sometimes there's um, strokes in perioperative settings, so post-anesthesia unit and surgical areas. Once patients are stabilized, there's a huge importance of case management, social workers, physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech-language pathologists, occasionally palliative care and hospice teams. And then this follows through to the outpatient setting to rehab where there's physiatrists and the patient's primary care physicians. And in the background of all this are really non-clinical administrative support, nonprofit groups, community-based health organizations, and a lot of governmental support that oversees the critical infrastructure that make this happen to provide funding and education. So when you say if it, what's the multidisciplinary support, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how many people are involved with stroke care. Mm-hmm. It's a very challenging disease to manage from beginning to end. Yeah. And speaking about the challenge, as a physician... How do you handle your emotions when handling patients who've had a stroke? And how do you help them and their, their loved ones handle the situation? That's a superb question. So stroke is inherently an exceptionally chaotic situation. So patients are okay, and then they're literally not okay seconds to minutes later. And what makes that person them is often a, a quickly changed. Um, and so patients come into the system. Oftentimes, they're coming in from the community. Strokes do occur in the hospital as well, a very small percentage, but most are coming in from the community. And because of that, a lot of times, clinical aspects about the patient are not really known when they arrive. So it's kind of similar to trauma or heart, heart attacks in this manner, where patients are just brought right to the ER immediately. As a clinician, you're working very quickly to 
ascertain critical information about that patient, and you're trying to make the best decisions for that patient with limited information. So it's really important to have clear communication with the care team, keep a very clear head about you, maintain any emotions, and and just really try to focus on helping that patient and their family through a you know, a really traumatic event. Oftentimes what happens is, you know, the dust settles after the first several hours. And at that point, really, um, you can help the patient and family process everything that's going on, really clearly explain expectations for the hospitalization in terms of what tests are going to be done, what the expected length of stay will be in the hospital, you know, what life will potentially look like over the next several weeks or months, potentially. And really be there to answer any questions about how this event has affected their life in a really compassionate manner. Hmm. How do you help the family in terms of you're talking to them or maybe them joining support groups? What do you suggest for family members going through this? That's great. So, you know, every state has departments of public health, which provide a lot of resources. But I, but I think the American Heart Association really provides a wealth of information for patients and for stroke survivors and, and caregivers, where they can access resources on controlling risk factors, support groups that are local or even you know virtual, what medications they should be taking, and really giving information in a, in a very clear patient level format. And so I guide a lot of my patients to the American Heart Association, which is heart.org, to look for any information. Dan from Mattapoisic Mass was playing paddle tennis when it happened without warning. By the second set, I couldn't play anymore. You know, just started feeling tightness and couldn't shake it and it wouldn't go away. Dan was having a heart attack. Luckily, he had the region's most advanced cardiovascular facility close to home and was taken by EMS to the Heart and Vascular Center at Charlton Memorial in Fall River. The thing I remember going into the operating room, the doctors and nurses were phenomenal. They walked you through it every step of the way. With 20 years experience, South Coast Health's Heart and Vascular Center of Fall River treats over 2,000 patients a year at one of the most active cath labs of any community hospital in Mass and Rhode Island. To find out more, visit southcoast.org slash heart. When you have a heart attack and you need open heart surgery, you want the best care. We have such a great hospital system right here in our backyard. It saved my life. South Coast Health, more than medicine. Dr. Sacchetti, what do you see coming down the pike in the next five or 10 years, whether it's technology or it's new medical breakthroughs in terms of stroke? What do you see? That's a great question. It's it's been a very exciting time in stroke. I actually pursued stroke because during my residency, five major clinical trials were positive for endovascular therapy for large vessel occlusion type strokes, and I was you know seeing patients who would have otherwise been having a high chance of neurologic devastation or even death, really having treatment provided to them where they could walk out of the hospital two days later. It was you know absolutely amazing to see. So I think in the coming years. There's going to be focus on furthering our therapeutics for acute stroke and especially for intracerebral hemorrhage, which we have not had a lot, admittedly, in terms of breakthroughs for treatment. So I think there's going to be a lot more on that front. And then I do think that there's going to be a lot of therapeutics for 
post-stroke recovery, not only strategies for physical and occupational therapy to work with patients, but you know, neuromodulation, transmagnetic stimulation, neuromuscular stimulation have, have really been taking off in terms of investigations with variable success, but it's really about finding the right patient for the right treatment at the right time. So focusing on which patients are going to benefit from X, Y, or Z procedure. And then there's a lot of interesting work on brain-computer interfaces. And that, you know, is really exciting to me to see where patients who have suffered a stroke and are left with disability, what can we do now with current technologies to provide as much independence for them as possible? Hmm. What would you like to leave our listeners with today? Well, I really thank you for your time and attention asking these great questions. I think really the the most important thing is for people to be aware of the signs and symptoms of a stroke and to seek medical care by calling 911 right away. So weakness on one side of the body, numbness on one side of the body, trouble with your speech, trouble with your vision, trouble with your balance, any of those things where there's a really abrupt onset of change to call 911 and get right to the emergency room as fast as possible so you can be evaluated by a team of doctors who know how to treat stroke. And then the other part is to really reduce your risk of stroke by stopping smoking, uh, getting off the couch and moving, eating a healthy diet, and really focusing on other risk factors like blood pressure control and lipid control. And I think you know those two things alone will help advance our treatment of patients um, to give them the optimal chance of recovery. Thank you so much, Dr. Daniel Sacchetti, for being on the program and talking about acute stroke symptoms and causes and how we treat stroke and also how to prevent it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. That wraps up this segment today on acute stroke with Dr. Daniel Sacchetti. I'm Patricia Raskin, your host. See you next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Healthy Aging with South Coast Health. To subscribe to this podcast, visit www.southcoast.org forward slash healthy dash aging. While you are there, we want to hear from you. Please take the time to complete a quick survey so we can learn more about the topics for upcoming episodes that you are most interested in to live a healthy lifestyle. Thank you to our hosts, Patricia Raskin and South Coast Health. This podcast is brought to you by creative content developer Raskin Resources Productions and produced by Virtually You.